Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. <laughs> you know, my work was so rageful and so full of vaginas. Hello, Rage. But that's also because I write as if I'm just, as if no one's listening. It's like a, an adrenaline junkie, but with personal disclosure. And there's like a cannibal that happens. I think people like to see other people naked. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors at Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And our guest today is someone very, very special to me. Someone very near and dear to my heart. How long have we known each other? 19 years. 19? Oh it's been that long? Yeah. Because oh it was God. 2000. Stacey Ann Chin is a poet, an actor, a performing artist, an activist, and one of my very favorite writers of all time. Her 2009 memoir, The Other Side of Paradise, rocked my fucking world. She was a co-writer and in the original cast of Russell Simmons' Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway, and she's written and performed four one-woman shows off-Broadway. Uh, yeah, is it true that you proudly identify as Caribbean, black, Asian, lesbian, a woman, and a resident of New York City, as well as a Jamaican national? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> if, my, if my points of oppression were a, a, a city, it'd be very expensive to live there. You know? <laughs> very diverse, <laughs> very like in it. Upscale. Like, upscale, you know. And the first full-length collection of her poems, Crossfire, A Litany for Survival, comes out October 15th, and uh, it is a must October read. October 1st. October 1st? I, yeah, I think it's October 1st. You need to tell Amazon. <laughs> really? Yeah. Amazon, it's October 1st. Stacey Ann Chin's first full-length collection of poems, Crossfire, A Litany for Survival, comes out October 1st. Welcome, Stacey Ann. Hey, Emily. So good to be here. <laughs> to meet a new friend, a new feminist, right? Feminist? Oh, definitely. Okay, yeah. just checking because, you know, you we don't want to assume anything. You know, we Most live in definitely. the age of do not assume. Sometimes we have a guest on this show that has very deep personal resonance for me. And then I do something kind of like a double introduction where I, I talk a little bit about why you are important to me mm -hmm. so people know where I'm coming from when I'm talking to you. So picture it. <laughs> the year 2000. Circa 2000. <laughs> I moved to New York City to work in the theatre. I got a job off Broadway doing... Every, all manner of administrative shit. As we say in Jamaica, head cook and bottle washer. Correct. And it was, I'm going to keep it brief by saying it was a very difficult job for me. But by far the greatest part, my favorite part, the part of that job that I carried with me in my heart for the next 20 years almost was working with Stacey Ann Chin. Aww. She was there being developed as an artist. Aww. She was doing her very first one woman show off Broadway. And for that first one, I was in charge. I was basically hype man for the show. <laughs> and my job was to go out with Stacey Ann Chin every night after work with a big stack of flyers for her show. And she was doing the spoken word slam poetry circuit and fucking killing it night after night after night and I was just there like to like hang out in the crowd and as soon as she got off stage and people were like agog with their mouths hanging open my job was to run through the crowd and go come see her show come see her show come see her it. show and hand out flyers oh and God. so I like got this <laughs> introduction to nightlife that you know like it felt good to be somewhere where I had a, a purpose to be there I met so many amazing writers. Mm -hmm. I know that because I was in this like world of writers every night and because I was listening to Stacey Ann's writing night after night after night, I know that I'm a better writer today because of the year that we spent together. Oh my God, I, I, I had no expectation of this like grandeur of a, <laughs> That's so, so it's amazing. meaningful for me to have you here and to celebrate your work. This is your very first collected works that are coming out. Yes, I mean, I, 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 in the beginning, I, I write about why it's taken me so long to, to, um, to, to put a collection together. Like, I, I, for such a long time, I didn't think that I was a real writer because I was, you know, my work was so rageful and so full of vaginas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
and and um that makes it doubly extra I know, real that's my favorite kind of thing i know but you know, and my favorite kind of thing too but i i went to study with Derek walcott for about six months he invited me down to boston to when he was at bu and i went down with him to to work and he, you know i mean he he leaned into me one day and he said you'd be such a great writer if you stopped writing all this vagina and feminist <laughs> stuff <laughs> A hundred years from now, like the essence of humanity will not be about the vagina. And I, I, I don't know how, like, I, I, um, I didn't realize I took it to heart so completely uh-huh. that by the time I ended up like writing this introduction for this book of poems and everybody's asking like, why have you never done a book of poems? Because I've been a fairly well-known poet for a really long time. And so now I'm, I'm forced to kind of like think about why it is uh-huh. that I haven't. And I realized that, you know, I grew up on like, you know, all of those writers, you know, Seamus Haney and the, all of those like dead white men, you know, Elliot. And they were just never concerned with the vagina so much, I find. Right. You find too in your well, reading? <laughs> for sure. Well, I mean, the, the fact that the canon, as they call it, mm-hmm. is, is not so vaginally focused but I've very penally focused very you know so like extraordinarily all penally focused and penetration <laughs> and upright it's all standing. the more reason for you to be publishing this collection because and i'm scared shitless like i can't like i'm i'm so stressed about the reviews here like i'm like oh, will they like it will they like it there's a way that i you know and i shouldn't you know like all of my favorite people seem to love this book and are supporting it um, I love the book. It wouldn't be fair for me to actually review it because literally there are portions of this book that I know as well as my my own name. Be- yeah, oh, because sure. I heard so them awesome. over and over again every single night. There, it was really emotional to revisit them and to have so many, so much of that intense year of my life all together in one book. Um, so obviously I How can't... How old re- were you when we were like bandying about... 25. Oh my God. I don't know why. <laughs> you are older you just seem like oh my goodness i can do it i know what i'm doing (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing quite so confident as a 25 year old oh my god (laughs) i was wondering how you chose the flow and the order it's not like it's chronological because these oldies but goodies are popping up everywhere (laughs) everywhere i'm like oh there's another one they're like secret easter eggs popping up just for me but how did you choose the flow and how tempted were you to edit the work of your youth oh my god i was age and experience so tempted (laughs) this is such an interesting take because most people don't know the 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 word inside inside scoop right here I, I really wanted to, you know, I, I saw my younger pen in them and I wanted to make the metaphor more mature. I wanted to, you know, to make the the meaning more nuanced in these poems. And but I, I, I also thought that if I did change them, what would happen was that I would lose the voice of my youth and it would be um, it would be my my youthful thoughts being filtered through my adult voice right and i didn't want that i wanted it to be a testament uh, a, a, a testimony of this work that i have created all these years but i it didn't feel like it should have been chronological uh, maya marshall who is um who was my editor was so good at like you know it it felt as if we weren't editing really because you know she would kind of like ask me a question and then we would have a conversation and then she would say, okay, I have some thoughts. And then she would go back and send me another draft. And I would be like, oh, this is good. And then we would have another conversation. And she'd say, oh, yeah. And then she would say, does this feel like anything's missing? <laughs> it's this very gentle process because I had no idea where to begin because I had a stack of poems that was maybe a foot and a half, two feet high. You know, because I had been, you know, I mean, anybody who knows me in performance, you're knows writing that I constantly. Y- yeah. And I also have this stack of writing. So like if you read the book, it it um, it starts it, like there are poems about this young woman concerned with like just her vagina and what is doing and how <laughs> can she can get more people to do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then, you know, it moves on to like, you know, issues of family and then 
there's the motherhood stuff and then there's the you know the political me the, the the kind of and then there's the more measured me and then there's the me that's kind of dealing with getting older and getting like pubic gray hairs <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I, you know I, I, the first time i got the galley and i read it through i was kind of in shock i was like this is my whole jam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this this is not just one book that I have like, oh, it's the last three years of poems with, you know, um the last three lovers. Now <laughs> it's it's like it has everybody in there. It has my brother in it. It has my my mother. It has my kid. It has lovers. It has the move to America. It has, you know, when I just started performing, it has me traveling through different states. Like, you know, it's um it's a hefty read. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hefty this read. This, as we say, a journée. A journée. A journée. I like that. I like that. Very français. <laughs> <laughs> Mais oui. Oh, man. I would have been so tempted. I'm like a, a compulsive editor. So The old like ones I didn't edit at all. Like the new ones, you know, I, f I still feel like I want to edit now. And, and in fact, those poems over the years have been edited for, you know, either content or, you know, um, current references or... But the very old ones that I almost never read anymore, which would be very interesting. Like I have a couple of readings coming up. It would be very interesting to see, hear me read them. Like there's a poem in there that if only out of vanity. Do you remember that poem? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where it says like, you know, will I be, you know, 40 years. I want to be 40 years old and weigh 300 pounds and ride a motorcycle in the wintertime. Uh-huh. You know, and I will tell I will tell oh, people how how fine I was then, how beautiful I was then, how et cetera. And and it's interesting. It's 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 at once um, it's at once interesting to 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 hear myself, my young self, kind of project who I will be, and see my older self lo look on with such such. Oh my goodness! Look at that <laughs> baby talking. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to make the baby talk be more adult, <laughs> but I also find that um, young people now you know, though they're dealing with like perhaps slightly different issues that a lot of the angst about being young can be left in there it's for them eternal. to read and, you know, um, compare their own experiences. Perhaps, you know, this can serve as a roadmap for the next, um, you know, black, Asian, Chinese, immigrant, Jamaican, lesbian writer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who turns out to be a single mama and a poet. <laughs> it might be somewhat of a roadmap. Oh, man. You know, Politics and poetry together and separately are not always easy sells, especially when it comes to drawing in audiences who actually have an expectation of being entertained. But you are especially good at reaching people this way. Um, what is your secret to attracting audiences for radical political spoken word performances and making them feel like they're actually getting a show like you've done this shit on broadway <laughs> I, I think people like to see other people naked <laughs> <laughs> well, that helps That's I, true. I, and i think you know all my lovers can attest to my my lack of nakedness inside the relationship but once i get on stage i just i strip <laughs> i can strip i could take all of my bits and pieces off and i think people are able to to have a very clear window into whatever it is that i'm struggling with um I, you know, I have a particular knack, I suppose, for letting an audience see something that you don't normally necessarily see every day. I mean, I also do it online. People talk about it all the time. But that's also because I write as if I'm just, as if no one's listening. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do my best to write as if no one else is listening. And, I, you know, um, one of my professors, Mervyn Morris, who taught me at university, one of the things that he used to say to those of us who um, thought that maybe one day we would be writers, he would say to us, um, you have to write the thing as if you are, as you, you, you don't write it for sharing. You decide if you want to share it later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you write the thing, and that's my rule of thumb now for, for writing. I write the thing first, and um, invariably I find that when you write it first, you um and you see you 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 are you're able to see how naked the thing is that uh, a shuttered version of it doesn't work for you anymore <laughs> <laughs> so if you take a chance and write it the way you want the way it really is i think you lose the ability 
or you lose the inclination to want to cover it up. It's like a an adrenaline junkie, but with personal disclosure. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Which is which is ripe for our age. I would say so. <laughs> when we first met in 2000, you were basically a refugee from your home in Jamaica simply because you were a lesbian. Yes. Uh, at the time, I had no idea when we met that all homosexuality was illegal in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Pub- I learned from you that it was punishable by prison time and gay people were being constantly attacked. Mm-hmm. Many um, of them killed. Yeah. And six years later, I remember Time Magazine named Jamaica the most homophobic place on earth. Um, I know that things have improved there. For some reason, lesbianism is legal, but male homosexuality isn't. I think because, like, the vagina isn't seen as a thing that can actually do anything. It can only be done to. And so if you have two vaginas in the room, then, then nothing is actually happening. No, 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 <laughs> you, know, no, it, you know, it's like a, the transitive and the intransitive, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> nothing is being done to anything with, without a, a penis. But there's definitely, there's no gay marriage. There's no gay ad- no. adoption. Ob- obviously, there's still a lot. It's still very dangerous to be gay there. But I, I, I want to I say I don't necessarily agree with the characterization that Jamaica is the most homophobic place on earth. You know, the, the media has kind of like Iran gone to is this giving place. you a run for your money. <laughs> well, I mean, so is Uganda. So is Nigeria. So, I mean, there's a, d- yeah. a ton of places. So is, you know, the South in America. <laughs> Well, sure. You know, rural areas in America, so are like maybe you know really kind of um, you know violent places in America. Like, I just want to point out that there's a way that like communities of color, countries of color, are being br- br- you know are being made to bear the brunt of of homophobia when there are so many places that it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, where is more homophobic than the U.S. right now in our current government? It's fucking wild man it's crazy i mean like this man would just not i mean he just came right out the bat and be like okay trans people you can't serve and you know if they could they would roll back all of the gay rights that we've been given mm-hmm. i'm just saying but but all of that to say yes that jamaica has made tons and tons and tons of strides in the two decades i've been in this country the activists there you know this is a place that i feel very deeply sad because I felt like I ran. I Mm. fled. You know, I tucked my tail between my legs and I ran to America. And um, not to discount all I've done here, but, you know, I I ran from the fight on the ground in Jamaica. And many, many, many women and men stayed. Mm. And now they, you know, I performed at the second Gay Pride celebrations in Jamaica. There have been marches. Uh, there have been like court cases. And granted, the laws have not changed. But I go to the campus that I was attacked by a dozen boys um, twenty years ago, and I see young people who are like, couldn't be any more out, couldn't be any more gay. And many people are greatly disturbed by them and annoyed by them and even angered by them. But largely speaking. There are many, many pockets in Jamaica now that it's safe. And I would like to think that my own presence in America and the kind of conversations we ignited on the global stage provided at least um, fuel for that, 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 that struggle, that fight, that fire that happened. Well, that was my question exactly. Like now, now that 20 years have gone by and um, you have this substantial platform and you have followers online and all over the world it do you have a sense of perspective on how your career has impacted the progress that's been made in Jamaica well I know that like um when I was on the Oprah Winfrey show to talk about being gay around the world (laughs) Uh being on that show I mean the the producers of the show called me afterwards to say are you okay because we are uh, experiencing an unusually like large number of threats about you, around you, you know, oh, people are shit. calling in to say that we know where your family lives and they're going to kill you and all kinds of crap. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I knew I was, I knew I had said the right thing when the gay community in Jamaica was like, you, you, you didn't say how badly we have it here. You didn't make a strong enough case for how badly we have it here. And then the people who were not straight and on the other side of the argument were like, you made it to be so crazy. Like you made it sound mm-hmm. as if like it was far worse than it is. Like, and I felt, okay, when you're, when you're making everybody upset, that means you're mm-hmm. actually presenting all the arguments <laughs> on the table. <laughs> yeah. So I felt as, you, and that, you know, that, that, um, 
that op- that show played over and over in Jamaica on the television there. And uh, when I went home after, there was like a slew of interviews. Um, I remember Muta Baruka, who is a famous uh, Jamaican uh, poet. Muta Baruka, very um, very macho guy, very much about like black rights, very much a guy's guy, you know, very much about being a man and uh, you know a powerhouse of a, a poet and a speaker and a presence. And he um, wanted to have me on his talk show. And uh, I was so scared and everybody was like, you shouldn't go. But I, I, you know, I I couldn't be on American TV talking and couldn't be on Jamaican radio. Mm -hmm. So I went home and I said, "Okay, let's do it. And I walked into his house and he said, I hope you don't mind. The studio is in my bedroom. And I was like, oh, my God, this man is probably going to like crazy, like botch me over the head or like at least skewer me like for being gay in conversation. And then he said to me, you know, you remind me of a young me when I was talking about like black rights and I was walking around barefoot and talking about the white man in, um, in, in, um, in Jamaica. <laughs> Everybody would, was giving him such a hard time. And he, um, and he kind of set me at ease by saying, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything that you talk about, but I can understand you're a young person trying to put forward a different argument and everybody's like, you know, m- uncomfortable with it. And 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 that's kind of the moment that I felt as if the conversation was far more nuanced than the press was making it mm-hmm. here and in Jamaica. That there were tons of people with relationships with people like daughters, stepdaughters, aunties, uncles, brothers, friends who were queer, gay, LGBT at the time. And... Um, you know, these people were in themselves struggling to find a way to talk about it, to humanize these people who had been dehumanized and kind of silenced and put to a place of um, of erasure for so long. I think that people were struggling with it and it, it opened up the conversation and kind of made me you know, um, think differently about the conversation. You know, they were like, oh, let's boycott Jamaica. Let's not go to Jamaica. Tour All tourists stop going to Jamaica. And I was like, you can't possibly you know, um, hope to win this fight by, like, taking money out of poor people's mouths. You yeah. can't say, you know what, these poor people in Jamaica are homophobic. These, you know, black people are homophobic. These Jamaicans are homophobic. So I'm going to take all of, uh, you know, your your way to make a livelihood away from you. Like, yeah. that's going to bring them to our, uh, our cause for mm-hmm. sure, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then uh, the conversation bec- became more nuanced. You know, Buja Banton was one of the musicians right. that was so... Um, you know, he sang the song Boom Bye Bye, which is the sound of gunshots in a, in a, in a gay, gay man's head. And then, you know, he, um, he actually went to prison for something else. And people were severely, like, every, like for sure convinced that the reason he went to jail was because the, the gay community was, the international gay community was out to get him. And that's why, I mean, he went to jail for like cocaine possession or something or trafficking. And then when he came out, I think the press came at me and said, well, what do you want to say to Budju now that he's out? I mean, like, how do you want to hold him accountable? And I said, this man, it's been eight years, 10 years after. Like, let us, like, hear what he has to say. And I was remarkably surprised he came out. He apologized for that song. He decided that he didn't want to play it anymore, didn't want it played anywhere, asked people to pull it from platforms. And uh, I don't know how real it is because I haven't had a personal conversation with him, but... That's movement to me. Yeah. yeah. From singing like "Let us shoot gay men in the head" to like that song, to 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 resisting any kind of pushback on it for a long time, to coming to terms with it and saying, "Well, whether it's not good for my career or not good for it, but let's not do it anymore." That's yeah. progress. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 these gay young people in Jamaica, I go home and I'm like. I'm not even nearly gay enough. These people have <laughs> outgayed me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I was That's the lesbian. Something. I was the lesbian in Jamaica. Like I would come home and the newspapers would write stuff like, you know, she was, you know, basically performing cunnilingus on the stage, you know, when I would, <laughs> write, <laughs> when I would read these like sex poems of my youth. And, uh, you know, I, now like they're just, th- these people, you know, like I am like not nearly gay enough next to all these young people who are just standing on the street corners and all these like you know butches or ags or studs or whatever they're calling themselves these days they're just out in the street just kind of taking up space and you know young trans people are like shopping in the supermarket dressed in full 
you know, regalia that will just make people just lose their minds and they're just like in the in in the in the in the supermarket aisles like wearing Prada and swinging their hips, you know, male bodies, female bodies, it doesn't matter. They're just at it and like amazingly doing whatever, you know, they, they you know, young people do when they, you know, harass the 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 larger community. If I were you, I'd be <laughs> proud of that. I yeah, am yeah. remarkably proud of them. Very, very, very proud. Not of, of them, them, of that. Like yes. I would, yeah. And and wishing, you know, like you know, wistful for, yeah, thinking like, oh my God, what I would have done to have been like an out in the supermarket lesbian in Jamaica when I was in my twenties. Oh my God, can you imagine all those supermarket women I would be dating? <laughs> <laughs> you know, those supermarket women are there for you now. I don't know. I'm like, I have a kid now, <laughs> you know, like, you know, at the end of the evening, like I want a mechanically assisted um, orgasm. I hear that. Quick, <laughs> quick and dead, quick and dead and sleep. <laughs> That's kind of where I am. Much of your early work really grappled with your history as a daughter who had been abandoned mm. by her mother. And then seven years ago, you became a single mother to a daughter and it's based on your work. It seems to have significantly altered your perspective as an artist. Can you can you speak to Completely. that? Completely. I mean, like one now I know exactly why I want to change the world. I have a very specific reason. I don't have this like ethereal kind of like in the sky, like, OK, there are these children who are going to be born in 10 years who I don't know their beautiful faces, but we must take care of the planet for them and we must make feminism change the world for them. And we have to like. Uh, you know, attack racism for them. Now I have a face that I rise and gaze into every morning, and that is the face that fuels this fight inside. There has of me. to still be strawberries for her whole life. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. In recent years, I've been delighted to see you gathered around. You've gathered around you a famous queer mama mafia. Specifically, <laughs> I'm talking about. Uh, Cynthia Nixon and Rosie O'Donnell, who have uh, Cynthia Nixon directed and Rosie O'Donnell produced uh, your one woman show Motherstruck that mm -hmm, you did mm -hmm. after you had your child. I saw a very tantalizing uh, trailer for a 15 minute short film of All it, right. which makes me think like they're shopping it around as a TV show. Can you tell me anything? Tell me about your queer mama mafia and how you guys are taking over the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the queer mamas have been for a while encroaching on the um, on the kind of like heteronormative space that parenting has been for generations. Um, and I've wanted to have a baby for a long time, and I've always been interested in like the w different ways that women do it. Um, Cynthia Nixon. You know, sh sh her journey to motherhood has been like this interesting, like m many different ways. Like she had, uh, a, she had a, 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 she was married to a, a man, and then she had children, and then um, she got married to a woman, and then that woman had the 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 the, the child after. And Rosie has been like a a, a person who has adopted, um, you know, uh, I think more than five kids in her journey as a mom. And and I, I was lucky enough to um to be in a space where they kind of gave me the opportunity to do the show, um and and they you know like I I I, I immediately when I emailed um Rosie when I emailed uh Cynthia the show I think she read it in like two hours and oh, said wow. yes <laughs> um I'll do it and and I'd met her on Broadway years before and when I when my book came out um I had met Rosie she had read it and then she had me on our radio show um to talk about the book and so there's a way that they were kind of like in my orbit uh -huh. and so when I reached out to them neither of them hesitated they were kind of very good and easy to jump on and it was a very fun project in terms of um you know I, I got to write this this this, this story about like having a, a, a baby and 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 being fierce about it and being irreverent about it and 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 I had these these you know mega lesbians you know uh <laughs> you know it's the, the, the tri-lesbian factor <laughs> Th that was that was fun for a while uh, you know but I also have like a, a a sea of other women who I think you need community I mean I, I struggle with it all the time because New York is a very transient city even within the context of a one community 
Like people move because the rent has gone up. Mm-hmm. People move because the building gets sold. People move because they get another job somewhere. And so people who become like your your community in one space or in one six month period, in another six months period, they're gone, kind of moved on to the next project. What I've learned in New York is that you have to be adaptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Cynthia, uh, you know, uh, and, and Rosie were in my life at that time. And they're people who I can kind of still call and reach out and hang out or do something with them. You know, but but there, there are other women who come in because they now have kids the same age as Zuri. Ah. And so now those become your like rolling mm-hmm. buddies because you show up with them every day, dropping off the kid. Your kid plays with their kid. And, you know, the next project I'm on, you just have to like look for where the community is mm-hmm. and make and take advantage of it in that moment and take full advantage of it. Because in six months, people might be elsewhere. They, you know, if, if they're good friendships, they'll come back around. My entire educational career was predominantly white including all the way through college and I met I'm sorry you. to hear that yeah I am too and <laughs> I I um you know like left college like ready to become a professional feminist in some way mm. but um when I met you and we were working together that was really my crash course in intersectional feminism and I had never really encountered so much of like I guess you could say the shortcomings of the feminist movement in terms of its lack of intersectionality up until a certain point and then working with you really opened my eyes to a whole Mm -hmm. range of ways in which feminism could improve yeah and and I, I I would like to say that it's less about what it is that I was teaching and more of what you were kind of just listening to my experience. Right, I was just a sponge nearby. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I, I want to say that it, it, like you, you learn about it not just by being with someone who's a great fucking, you know, intersectionist guru, which I wasn't. It was really about just being close to people of a different melanin capacity. <laughs> and it wasn't just you. Like, you were very generous in including me in your whole circle, your whole y- milieu. Right. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. And so, like, I really, I, f- I feel not only am I a better writer having known you, but I feel definitely that I'm a better feminist having known you and spent the time that I did with you, which is partially why I chose a poem from your book that I wanted you to read, which I think is a very powerful example of the kind of voice that you are in moving this kind of intersectional feminism forward and if you wouldn't mind i would love you to read this poem from your book it's called tsunami rising it's you said it's hashtag me too yes hashtag me too um and it's on page 67 of your new book i don't know seven of crossfire lord have See, this book will be out <laughs> in the world in no time. And hopefully, oh. when also when you're reading this poem, people will understand why audiences really flock to your writing as a performance as well as for something on the page. No pressure. None. <laughs> <laughs> Tsunami rising. Hashtag me too. In the balance of human biology, all bodies are created equal. Every body is about 70% water, regardless of race, Religion, gender, sex, or sexual orientation, we all die after about seven days without drink. But the idiots obsessed with category have decided that a double X chromosome designates me subordinate to those with an X and a Y. Intersect those two X's with the fact of my blackness and my existence is coded as dangerous, hostile, a direct threat to the endurance of the white patriarchy. And everybody knows white men have spent centuries appropriating what they wanted. The gold they found in Africa was not enough, so they packed human bodies head to toe, submerged in a swamp of our own urine and feces. They dragged us across violent waters. Many of us drowned or young rather than let them live at the mercy of white men and their sons and their grandsons and their grandsons' sons. To keep breathing, some of us became one-dimensional. In the public imagination, in real life, in books, we had to become one thing or the other, spinster or mother, virgin or victim, damsel or whore. Some of us went underground for centuries. Some of us let go, slipping away into the sunken place. Others revolted, took up arms, crawled through sewage, defied geography to build new lives in new cities. In Brooklyn, I spend my nights reading tales of Nubians bathing naked in the Nile, Kushite queens equal to kings, all of them praying to a black woman named Isis, the most powerful goddess among gods. 
I imagine if I were her, I would use my might to smite every motherfucker who looked at a little girl with lust in his flesh. I would exact vengeance on behalf of every black woman who has disproportionately borne the weight of racial and sexual violence while everyone in the suffragette movement and the black civil rights movement and the LGBT movement turned a blind eye to her swollen lips mouthing, me too, someone please help me get him off me, me too, me too, me too for centuries. We have endured the culture of rape and racism combined. For centuries, the world has stood silent while black women and girls were bullied by black men and white men and white women alike. For centuries, everyone who wanted to hit something or own someone, they could decide we were it without consequence. Anyone could tag the black woman, the dark girl, the universal punching bag. For centuries, rape was a word black mothers never spoke aloud, but every daughter knew what it meant lie still it will pass keep quiet ignore the girl who screams too loudly don't you dare shame this good black family and then something brilliant happened a black woman named tarana burke inspired inspired wealthy white women to say me too too and herein wriggles the strange rubric of America's particular strain of racism. Ironically, the viral mobility of the MeToo hashtag was only possible because a white woman with power retweeted a black woman's words. Two words with which unleashed a wildfire of public testimony, pulling the shroud of sexual violation from the shadows, shoving it onto primetime TV. Yet... Twelve years after Tarana Burke's Me Too moment, black women are still largely missing from the public dialogue about sexual assault. And we, we are so tired of being disregarded. And if you gave us room to speak honestly, this is the letter we would pen to white feminists whose crying consistently drowns out the sound of our suffering. Dear weeping white women, even as we cannot find the safe space to show you when or where or how we were torn open, we are only holding our sorrow to keep our hearts from imploding. We are unable to process our pain with you because we are exhausted from centuries of holding you and your children. We have a hard time trusting you because you have never been able to stand by us. We are so tired of explaining ourselves. If you wish to know more about the genesis of this rage, please Google us or read Bell Hooks or Brittany Cooper or the blogs of the bevy of black women writers. Your white publishers are too afraid to publish. For centuries, we have been carrying the weight of your white fragility. Year after year, marching for everyone else's freedom, protesting for everyone else's privilege but ours. Well, this crazy mad gaggle of global witches and hags are done braiding beads of silent acceptance. Simply put, in this century, we intend to take up more motherfucking space. Sincerely, black womanists. Black women are crafting a collective response to centuries of being under everybody's water. We are a rising tsunami of fury come back to take back what was carried away without consent. And while we're here being candid, I might as well confess to you that I don't give a fuck if you don't like me and my big mouth black like my lover's ass. It has never endeared me to the gatekeepers of white civility. My proclivity to speak the unspeakable is essentially the only defense I have against the indefensible violence of your man-made history in my house. There is no shadow talk of birds and bees. We trade indecipherable metaphors for concrete words that will not confuse my daughter. I tell her, your mouth, your elbow, your hair, your arms, your legs, your vagina, your whole body belongs to no one but you. And if you ever feel even a tiny bit unsafe, you open your mouth and scream for help. If anybody, anybody at all does anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, you tell me and I will always believe you. In a world that so regularly demonstrates how much it hates you, this is what it means to be assigned the label of black and girl. And yet, yet black women continue to survive, to thrive, arrive into adulthood with the ability to laugh, to love, to wear hoop earrings and tight skirts and found social movements to liberate other motherfuckers from bondage. If any of this sounds like I'm speaking your story, this poem be for you, my love. If ever you have ever had to argue that you are no less deserving than your white counterpart, I am talking to you if you have ever been inspired by the magic of black women with thighs and asses that move mountains in their stride, if you have ever been told you speak too fiercely from the thick lip of your own truth, 
if you have ever been called girl like it was a fucking insult. If you have ever been called bitch, step forward now if you are itching to light a fucking fire in the house of the white patriarchy. Come stand with black women now. If you want to be free like Harriet Tubman, weapon in hand, wading through unfriendly waters, her power compelling the freedom of even those who did not want to be free. If you desire to be confrontational like Sojourner, if you wish to be audacious like Audrey, antagonistic like Angela, gangster like Winnie Mandela, angry like Asata Shakur, come rear, roar with us at these rallies. Sit beside us in school. Sing with us in church. Stand with us where it matters. Vote with us and for us at the polls. Travel with us in the virtual, in the flesh, over these waters they have used against us as weapons across the lands of this rock we all call home. Let us use fire to crack the ground wide open with an uprising that will never again die down. No more water, fire next time. No more water, fire next time. Whoa. Yes. Let's do it. Let's burn it to the ground, man. (laughs) That was amazing. Ah. Uh, Thanks for allowing me to read that. That was amazing. Man. There's so there's so much. Um do you at this point in your life, in your career, consider yourself a feminist, a womanist, both? How how do you self-identify in terms of your feminist politics? I use the word that will get more people on board. Uh-huh. So if I'm in the company of black women, I will say womanist because they like to be um, they like to be acknowledged and they like to know, uh, you know, the word womanist carries in it um, the, 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 the knowledge of a struggle, you know, a racial struggle inside the feminist movement. And mm-hmm. so the word womanist evokes that and lets listeners know that you are aware that there are problems even in house. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, from in a fe- from a feminist perspective. But when I'm um, when I need the word feminist, I mean, when I don't, when when that person isn't, when my listener isn't necessarily concerned with that part of the conversation, and I just want them to look at the inequalities between those of us who identify as female and those of us who don't. Um, I think the word feminist works. So I'm not here to quibble over words. I want to, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, fuck the words, man. Like <laughs> let's 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 get down to the deed. What's the deed? The deed is we have to like make sure that the world works for everyone, that the world mm-hmm. is taking care of, uh, you know, um, women in the way that it takes care of men, um, takes care of trans women, it takes care of black women, takes care of immigrant women, undocumented women, you know, girls who are not, you know, uh, girls who have been trafficked. Like, I mean, there's so many of us who are under the heel of the patriarchy. You know, men who are told that they're not man enough and therefore they are like kind of like, you know, you they use terms like sissy, which is code word for you're a woman, you're not a man. It really should be about like looking where the inequities um, or the inequalities actually are. I think that, you know, the word sissy won't matter <laughs> so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on the upcoming election cycle and who might best address these inequalities for us? I am digging Elizabeth Warren so far, and uh, I think she's like fearless. I think she's um, she takes no punches, and I I feel like even when she faltered a little bit on that uh, Native American yeah. conversation, I felt like she got in there and like owned up that she was like being not as good as she could have been, uh-huh. and then said sorry, and then was on it right after that. I feel like uh, you know everybody has faltered in many ways. And I feel like everybody's trying to look as if they didn't falter or if it wasn't a real fault or they didn't, they didn't really make a, make a, a strong, you know, you know, I, I, I think I'm having the conversation that everyone is having. I think, oh, maybe, maybe Biden can really beat Trump. And so I'm concerned mm. about beating Trump. So I'm like, should we vote the one that we think sh- could beat him? But I think it's early. And I think we, um, if we, st- if, if we get more people interested in the conversation, we might get conversations that lead us to like really choosing a candidate that could not just beat Donald Trump, but like do be- better for the country. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm I with hope you. So. I, and I'm, I'm with Elizabeth Warren as well. Yeah. I like her and she's cute. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Uh, and she, she with her little run. I, and she's <laughs> like, I know. It's a very feminist little run. We must do better. What are your hopes and dreams and plans for 2020? Hopes and dreams. These are like <laughs> big fucking questions. Here. Yeah. You know, I, I hope to get my kid to school on time every day. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to write a new book. 
about my mother, which like has been like uh, my mother has been like a legend and a a ghost and a magician and a shaman <laughs> and a witch and a disappearing act. Uh-huh. And um, she remains that even uh, 25 years after knowing her. Um, so I want to write the book. I want to I want to I want to follow my mother. I want to walk in the footsteps. You know, she she doesn't even remember where she's been. But I want to trace those steps and find out who she was at those points. And, you know, um, I want to make sense of this woman who, who, who spoke my existence into being as lies she told to other people about the life that she was living. Mm. So when she was telling everybody she was a writer and that she was traveling from country to country and that she was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, London for the weekend, which is kind of like my life now. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I want to know. I want to know, like, what's the relationship between my mother lying about a life that came true for me? Ah, yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. Man, that's heavy. Yeah, yeah, but also I'll read it. But also amazing. Like my mother yeah. crossed the American border. My mother went to um, my mother got on a plane from Germany and got into the States on a plane with no valid visa and an expired passport, a Jamaican passport. That's witchery. <laughs> That's sorcery. I still don't know how she did it, but there she was. Yeah. Arrived. Um, you know, I, I want to get laid. <laughs> That's a That's a goal well, for yeah. the vision board. Yeah, I, I Yeah, I feel like I feel like I, I want someone to proposition me. Um, we're going to take the briefest of breaks and then when we come back, um, I'm going to ask you and I'm going to ask Callie and hopefully you guys will ask me what I'm watching. But before we take that break, I just want you to know that I'm so happy that you came here to talk to us and I love you so much. I love you back so, so very much. And thank you for coming to see me when I was so pregnant and so sick. You reminded (laughs) me of that. And thank you for being who you are, for writing the things that you write, for covering the things you cover. And for just like reminding me just now of a time in my life where that was quite magical. It was, right? It was quite magical. Thank you for that. (laughs) All right. We're going to take that break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what what you watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically I have a docket. You have a docket, we all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina, I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Smith, <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. so smart. I mean, so smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Hello. So I want to know what you're watching. And when I say what you're watching, this is a very broad question. We're talking about movies, TV, books, music, music videos, mm. podcast, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably cool 
Stacey Enchin, what you watching? <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just finished a book. Um, uh, I think it's by, by uh, it's called The Town of Love by Prem Nagar, I think. It's an Indian, uh, it's an Indian writer that wrote about um, tra- trafficking. Like it knocked me over and like made me weep and it was beautiful. I'm also watching Pose. Oh, Pose. Love it. Yeah, so I'm kind of catching up. And I just finished watching um, Frank and Gracie or Gracie and Frank. Grace oh, yeah. and Frankie. Grace yeah. and Frankie. That is like crazy ridiculous. I mean, it's so inspiring and beautiful and funny and ridiculous. Um you know, and, and I, I'm following the news, you know, watching as much news as I can to see what what these presidential Oof. candidates are going to look like and yeah. what, what that fight is is um, is 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 gearing up to be. And I'm also watching this thing called Larva. What's it's Larva? It's like a little kid show about two worms living in the city in the drain. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That sounds so cute. So Where are you watching it? On what platform? I, d- I think it's on, um, I, I want to say that it's on Netflix b- or, you know, but Larva. Yeah. And, Larva. you know, and they, they, so they find a ca- they find a can of soda and then they, they want to get the soda. But then it's like they shake the bottle of the, the, the can or bottle of soda. It's my kid. She gets me into all this stuff. I'm also watching a show called Larva, but it's a live show happening in my sink. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. I see. I see. I, w- I would say you, it's you a reality show <laughs> to see what the real thing looks like. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially, I think that's kind of where I am. And, you know, I'm, I watch a lot of like, I don't know what I'm doing TV just uh-huh. to kind of let the, 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 the you know, to kind of unwind in the evening after mm-hmm. the kid goes to bed. Awesome. Yeah. Callie, what you watching? What am I watching? Oh, I'm watching the worst show. Let's start this off with what? Not to watch. Okay. Okay. Island. Have you heard about Island? It's no. Like Island, but I dash land. Mm-mm. Okay. It's on Netflix. It is getting roasted in the reviews. Let me just tell you. Let, let me let me just. Kate Bosworth at one point says that she hates it. It's like 10 people that wake up in the island and they don't have any memory of how they got there, who they are. Okay. And one, this one guy tries to uh, rape one of the, like the main protagonists when they're off like scouring the island looking for stuff and she gets away from him and he comes back and she tells everybody and Kate Bosworth's character goes um I don't like hanging out what was it um she talks she just goes on a rant about hating women and then just walks over to hang out with the rapist oh, instead. come on and then the rapist later goes oh by the way I wasn't trying to rape you there's no such thing like that in a place like this there's just sex or no sex and we didn't have sex mm. what right so this whole time i'm like oh my fucking god and then <laughs> the hollywood reporter said because it got bought by netflix after the pilot and then they bought the whole thing he was like who was watching this and goes so you've made a porn parody of loss but without the sex mm. and that is basically what it is it's like that level of acting and and no continuity and you have no interest in anything and there's like a cannibal that happens but then the cannibals never just really doesn't really play a thing doesn't sound like a winner Callie no it is absolutely ridiculous I'm gonna probably finish watching it though unfortunately (laughs) because now you're a glutton for punishment now I need to know like what the fuck why how did this get made Mm. Um, also watching the righteous gemstones on HBO that's a watch okay that is like I love John Goodman. Yes, it's John Goodman, Adam Devine, um, Danny McBride, who created it, um, and Edie Patterson, and um, they're just like a family of super rich mega church people. So they own like a massive church, and they're like televan tele televan. So it's like the Baker family. Yes, but really fucking funny. Okay. There's not a lot of mascara, but there's a lot of hilarity. Okay. There's like kidnappings and mm. blackmail and crazy religious people. And yeah, I guess wow. that's what I've been watching. Wow. It took me a while to watch this, but it, you know, for me, every day is Halloween. And so um, Halloween, the 2018 one with Jamie Lee Curtis coming back is now on HBO Go. Mm. So I was watching that. Um, yesterday and she's back as laurie strode and in this one is an intergenerational tale where if if anybody's not familiar with halloween back in i think it was 79 or 80 the original one came out with jamie lee curtis and it started off her career and she was the teen being stalked by the maniac michael myers and in this one she's back as an older woman with a daughter and a 
an adult daughter and a teenage granddaughter and it's Halloween and Michael Myers has escaped confinement and is out ah. to find her. And she has spent all low these many decades preparing for the day that he would come back and so it really becomes you know it's a slasher flick but more than that it is this women-centric intergenerational tale of trauma and the ways that a woman's trauma impacted her daughter impacted her granddaughter how like this legacy of trauma Mm. makes them all deal when like literally the boogeyman of all male violence descends upon them how this legacy of trauma mm. prepared them to fight back mm, wow. which they do which they do and it's so satisfying oh in nice. a deeply psychological way i cannot recommend it more and obviously i'm not alone because this movie broke all kinds of box office records when it came out in 2018 and now Jamie Lee Curtis has signed on not to do one, but two more. Oh, amazing. Mm. So, like, obviously it's striking a chord with women. I mean, not maybe with, like, all horror fans, but as as a woman who consumes horror movies, even though they're frequently misogynist, this hits all the right notes and is great. And I cannot mm. recommend it enough. As our frequent listeners know, this has been my year of Harry Potter. I never read the books or anything until this year and I've been reading through them and then watching the movies right after I finished them. Between last episode and this one, I read book five, which was big. It was a big 800-pager, which is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and then watched the film and they did a great job on the movie. I He gets older in each book, so now he's 15 and he is a moody little bitch. <laughs> and I enjoy that they're, you know, like making him full of teen angst. Like, I'm glad that he's not just all all scrubbed up. I like that he's, like, they're allowing their protagonist, they being J.K. Rowling, she's allowing her protagonist to be annoying and my kid is mercurial. Ju- my kid is almost finished with book one. Oh, I love it. I know. We have a new dog. His dog is Phoenix. The dog's name Phoenix. Aww. Phoenix Luna Hermione Chin. Oh, yes. my gosh. It's the best. Oh, it's the best. So and that, that reminds me. <laughs> the movies are... are um are very good considering how much magical shit happens in the books. They mm-hmm. really are able to bring a lot of it to life. For sure, yeah. Um, the one thing that I didn't expect out of book five is that it was very on the nose in terms of like the rise of a Trumpian anti-intellectual oh. fear-based autocracy mm. descending upon Hogwarts. And I wasn't ready to encounter those feelings while reading my YA, but I had to, I had to reckon with them. In book five, so know that <laughs> it is uh, the wizarding book for the resistance. Basically, is book wow. five. If you want to skip ahead, uh, and then the other thing I was watching on Netflix is this big uh, multi se- multi season series, Hip Hop Evolution. Um, it started out as a Canadian music documentary series that was on HBO Canada. Now it's on Netflix. A rapper named Shad. What is, is it called? It's called Hip Hop Evolution, and oh. it's this huge multi-part history of hip hop. And the episode that I was watching called Pass the Mic actually reminded me so much of my time with mm. Stacey Ann Chin because it was all about the mid-90s alternative hip hop scene that definitely like came about in tandem with the spoken word poetry scene mm. that was happening at New York in poets cafe here in new york at the same time that there was hip-hop and poetry and the lines between them were totally crossed especially because people were rapping without beats and without any kind of music and so it was definitely more on the poetry end of the spectrum that's where uh most deaf was mm-hmm. came out of that scene in the mid 90s and then they talked about the freestyle fellowship in la and eminem in detroit and and how like by the 2000s it was like all of these poets were breaking through into hip hop and changing it forever. Mm. And then in the next episode the dirty south was all about the Atlanta people. Um you know as with a lot of hip hop coverage I want there to be more women because I think that there are more women in the scenes every on every episode than than are actually being interviewed. But um, they also do a good job 
um, just sort of helping to to put hip hop in the broader historical context that it deserves. Mm. I, I I also um, watched a film called One Last Thing about a um, a girl who um, a man comes looking for her as her father. Uh huh. And then I mean I guess you know can you talk you spoilers here? Yeah. Yeah. It, it turns out that he's not her father. But then she needs like a kidney and then they do this weird thing where he gives the kidney. And so it's this like, again, modern family, this idea of how family isn't necessarily, you know, blood or isn't necessarily uh, it doesn't happen the way that you think it's going to happen or it's not a straight line that, it, mm-hmm. you know, you can find family in any, w- any way you, you, you choose. And it was pretty well done. I thought it was beautiful. That, my friends, is what I've been watching. Well. This has been hip hop so much. Yeah, definitely. Thank you to our producers, Kate Moldenauer and Jesse Karen at More Banana Productions, our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. (laughs) Muy caliente, Logan. Muy caliente. Uh, And of course, to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on social media. Don't even try. Where can they find you on at social Stacey media? At Stacey Anchin, S-T-A-C-E-Y-A-N-N, Stacey Anchin, C-H-I-N, S-T-A-C-E-Y-A-N-N, Stacey Anchin, <laughs> at Stacey Anchin on everything. <laughs> you can email Callie and I. I'm at mm-hmm. Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And we want to be as famous as Stacey Ann Chin. So we really, really <laughs> appreciate it. Until next time. Mwah. Mwah.